0: You're listening to Voices Not Victims, empowering you to share your story, eliminate shame, shatter the victim label, and lift up your voice. Welcome to the Voices Not Victims podcast. We are in the last week of 2020. I am so glad to close this chapter out and we're going to start fresh, start new. There's a lot of changes coming up in 2021 and the light at the end of the tunnel is coming. I know personally a few friends that just got vaccinated and I cannot wait for that day to come and it's coming soon. If you are a new listener to the show, I'm your host, Katie McMahon, and the creator of Voices Not Victims. Every episode, I sit down with survivors, advocates, and nonprofits to center the conversation around sexual assault. Today's episode is about advocacy. We sit down with Bianca Rosen. Bianca Rosen is a writer, anti-rape advocate, and communication strategist based in the Bay Area. Her work in the anti-rape movement began as a sexual assault counselor in San Francisco. For three and a half years, she supported survivors on the local crisis line. Through this experience, she witnessed how the city mistreats survivors and fails in its response to sexual violence. Bianca's time as a counselor galvanized her to advocate and write extensively on this issue. She wrote a graduate thesis that examined San Francisco's response to sexual assault from a survivor-centered perspective and made recommendations for change. She adapted this thesis into an article for a local publication and authored several op-eds that jump-started a dialogue among elected leaders and community members about adopting more survivor-centered practices. Today, she is organizing a coalition of survivors and allies on the front lines of local anti-rape advocacy work. Bianca wants to build the survivor community's political power to interrupt and improve responses to sexual violence at the local level. I took a lot away from this episode and learned a lot from Bianca. She has a wealth of knowledge to share in the area of advocacy, and I hope you find a lot of value in this episode as well. With that said, let's get into it. Thank you so much for coming to the show today. I'm really excited to talk to you about your experience and advocacy and really just share your story.
1: Of course, happy to be here.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about your story, who you are, share that with our listeners?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised in the Bay Area and specifically a town called Piedmont in the East Bay and Piedmont is a little town surrounded by Oakland. It's kind of an odd setup, and it is a very privileged community, but it's also a very liberal community as they identify themselves. And that's where I was born and raised. And it was really at Piedmont High that my journey in the anti rate movement really began. When I was a sophomore, the varsity football players began something called the Fantasy Slut League. So very much like fantasy football, they would create teams of players and those players were female students. And they would get their points based on the sexual activity that those female students engaged in. And Obviously, oh. to count those points, there had to be a public forum. They used a Facebook group. I believe at that time. So let's say that I hooked up with somebody on Saturday night and we made out whoever that was, because it was a very small community. Whoever saw it, whoever it was, would post on Facebook and be like, Bianca Rosen, five points, make out, or whatever it would be. And this lasted from when I was in high school to when my sister was a senior. So that was five years. During the Fantasy Slut League, I became a very easy target. I was, I liked to dress promiscuous. I guess I would say I had big boobs. I still have big boobs. And at the time I really felt like that's what I had going for me. I had really low self-esteem as a teenager. I think I also had a tendency towards depression. So I very much relied on outside validation. You know, because of that, a lot of the conversations in the Fantasy Slut League and about me were really negative. The guys called me Fat Rack Rosen. Sometimes they called me Donk. Like I, I was very much belittled to how I looked and what my body parts looked like. And I was also friends with these people. On the one hand, I see them in my everyday life and have these connections, these relationships but I still wasn't like a real person to them where they treated me with respect. So I went on to college. I went to Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles. And when I got to school, I had a really hard time. It was a really difficult transition. And I really carried the low self-esteem I had in high school to college. But now I felt like I'm not gonna be that girl again. I'm not gonna be the joke. And in my mind, as a 18 year old new to LA, I felt like my way of avoiding sexual harassment, which is really what it was, was to be as beautiful and skinny as I could be. So I really dove into a very strict regimen about how I could live my life. I could never have a single carb. I had to, Exercise five days a week without fail. I mean, I had all these rules for myself, and I didn't even realize that was disordered eating until I had come home for the summer, and and realized, wow, I, I really can't live my life like this. This is extremely abnormal, and I can't, I can't keep this up. So I went to therapy and really did some deep diving into what was going on and where this all came from. And I realized, wow, what happened in high school was sexual harassment. And I never had the language about that before until I actually learned in college about feminism and gender-based violence. And after having that realization, I became a sexual assault counselor. And this is now after college. So some years after therapy and doing a lot of healing work but I wanted to be part of the community response to violence, having seen how the community is complicit in violence. So for the past five years or so, um, I've been a sexual assault counselor. More recently, I have mostly been off the hotline because it's very stressful and obviously times are very stressful. And I might, I can't really handle it right now, but um, in being a counselor, you see, the ins and outs of the reporting process, for example, the sexual assault kit process. You hear how investigators and attorneys and folks who are part of social services with the city, how they're treating survivors and how survivors experience that system. And it's not good. The city, San Francisco, so let me note that, my work was based in, in the city, There's a lot of issues in their response to sexual assault and not really centering survivors. So, I began to write articles about that and really advocate for survivor centered reform in the city's response to sexual assault. And in doing that, I've connected with other advocates who are really leading the charge in their city to improve local responses and to interrupt violence at the local level. So, I'm working with folks who are in Seattle, Austin. Minneapolis, Atlanta, again, locally focused advocates who are pushing their city, their local government to do better by survivors, and that's really where I'm at right now. Um, I'm very passionate about local work. I feel like that's where the change, where we see the change, the most, and that's where survivors feel the impact policies the most. Definitely, so I'm trying to move that local advocacy piece forward and really connect advocates so we can amplify our efforts.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I'm sorry to hear what you experienced in high school and just listening to it. It makes me think about how it's almost like conditioned too. It's like you probably did not dress in a way that should be labeled that way. It's the conditioning they give towards women like that. This is how you should appeal and like that your looks are your worth your story resonates with me because I know after my trauma I was very fixated on what I ate and how much I exercised and how much I weighed it was like the main focus um yeah and it's it's heavy and it's just like later when you grow that self-awareness of it it for me it just makes me want to scream to people now like No, like, this is how the system keeps you small by making you focus on how you look and your weight and saying that all of your worth is in your appearance. Like, that's what they want for women to do. But we're we're so
1: much more than that. That's so well put. And I I did recently-ish write an article for this magazine about the connection between disordered eating and sexual violence. And I think that's absent from the conversation a lot. Obviously sexual violence impacts how survivors relate to their body, feel in their body, live in their body. And we definitely need to have those conversations about the impact of that, especially because oftentimes eating disorders last a lifetime. I mean, I still consider myself in recovery. I'm always trying to do better. In my case... My therapist called it workout bulimia. So it's not as cut and dry when there's like a relapse or something like that. But I can tell, I can tell when I'm stressed or I'm I'm thinking about situations in my past that trigger me that I will immediately go into my loop of like, oh my God, I've gained so much weight. Like I'm so fat now. So I do think it's a connection that we need to make in the anti-violence movement a bit more.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I feel like we can't, as a lot of survivors, it's hard to get out of fight or flight if you're constantly not getting enough nutrition, and your body like doesn't have enough intake, then you're going to stay in fight or flight longer, but also it's like it's kind of not your fault, because you were made to feel unsafe in your body, um, so it is a struggle, and I feel like it, getting it acknowledged is important.
1: But- so true,
0: But I appreciate you sharing about the work you're doing in advocacy, because I agree that the local level is so important. And it is astonishing to see when you talk to people in other communities, the patterns that are across the whole country in each of
1: these cities, for sure. Absolutely. That is so true. I couldn't agree more. And I will note that there obviously are fantastic anti-violence organizations that do work at the national level. And that is so important. But um, more recently in San Francisco, in the past three years, we've really had this reckoning where survivors have come forward and really pushed the change. And unfortunately, there's been a lack of organizational support, whether that be because of their 501c3 status or, you know not having enough funding, whatever it may be. And I do think that survivors and advocates who do this work outside of their nine to five need support and we can all be a great network for each other.
0: Yes, definitely. It's like the collective is so important um, because it is tough work. And especially if you're doing it outside of a nine to five, it can be um, heavy but doing it together is so important. But I was curious too, because I know you um, went through college and then you were working as a sexual assault counselor. Was there a certain kind of like turning point or point in time where you found your voice and that's when you kind of started to gain momentum with the speaking out um, or the work you were doing?
1: I would say... Becoming a counselor and really holding that direct service piece gave me the confidence to speak on the issue. A lot of the times women, all people have imposter syndrome, and I still have those feelings as well. But when I root my experience and the work I'm doing in my direct service and what I've seen firsthand, I really feel confident in that. So again, seeing how those systems worked really helped me and really drove me to speak on the problems, having those one-on-one conversations with folks. I also went to grad school in San Francisco at USF where I wrote a thesis about these issues. So I was given a platform to really examine the problems very carefully and that gave me a space to really express myself and advocate for improved policies. Wow.
0: Can you speak more on the the thesis that you did work on? I'm very curious about what that looked like.
1: Absolutely. So I essentially examined San Francisco's response to sexual assault from a survivor-centered perspective. So I literally walked through every step of the process after somebody has been assaulted in San Francisco and they're looking for services. So I went through what happens when you go to the hospital, what happens when you go, when you want to report and you either go to the police station or have a B officer come to a rape crisis center, what does the, investigation process look like. Oftentimes, survivors are asked to do a pretext call in which they are asked by detectives to call their rapist or abuser and trick them into confessing to their assault. And I can't even speak to the efficacy of that because I wasn't given data around it. I was told I could not get data around that. But Mm -hmm from what I did here, a lot of the time survivors are told, well, we can't move forward.
0: Yes, that's what happened to me.
1: Yeah, unless you do that. That phone call. Wow, yeah, again, another pattern between different localities, yeah. Um, That's a very coercive practice. So looking at all these processes step-by-step and recommending to improve them, not to see necessarily more arrests or convictions, but to just improve the process, to make it more human for people. Yes. I had asked the Lieutenant of the Special Victims Unit at the time, what do survivors want out of reporting? What do they tell you? And she says, oh, we've, I've never asked before, which is just unbelievable because when you go to the advocate side and say, what do survivors communicate as something that they want to get out of reporting? Oftentimes, it's just having this written down somewhere officially yeah. in case it happens to somebody else. Safety. All things that could be addressed better if we just simply asked what they wanted. You okay. know, If local systems just simply were like, what are, you, what are you looking for out of this? It was a very interesting process. And at the end of this thesis, I obviously recommended policies to improve the system to be more survivor centered because ultimately law enforcement cannot guarantee, as most of us know, any form of legal justice. Very rarely do perpetrators see one day in jail. The numbers actually, I believe, were of the cases of adult sexual assault that were reported in San Francisco in 2016, which was about 757, about, I think it was around 40% were investigated. Wow. And then I can't remember the percentage exactly, but it was around 297 that were investigated, 91 referred to the DA's office and maybe like 11 cases of adult and child sexual assault that reached a guilty verdict. And again, these measurements shouldn't be our only metric for success because even if there was a guilty verdict, we have to ask ourselves, how was the survivor treated throughout that process? So my main argument was, look, if we can't guarantee justice legal justice we can at least guarantee that survivors are treated with respect throughout this process
0: yes there's so much i can speak to on that because i went through that process and they did have me do the phone call and i actually had an advocate right after my trauma and i waited a year to go to the police cuz right away she told me it's up to you you can go if you want you did i did the um non-report kit so they had the DNA or the they took the samples or whatever and um, so she said if you go they are going to make you do that phone call so I was told up front you're going to have to do the phone call and even just getting that information you're terrified because it's so terrifying to think you have to call like a rapist up and have a conversation And I think that alone would make a ton of cases ineffective just from like a neurology standpoint is how I think of it, too. So it's really interesting to hear that that's a practice
1: used um, in San Francisco as well. Which I would never have known about unless I did this project. You know, the public just doesn't know about the issues or even their options after an assault. I, as a counselor, know this because I was trained in it to inform survivors about it on the phone, but if you're not privy to this information because you're in the field, yes. you just have no idea Yes, what to do after you've been assaulted or what your rights are.
0: Definitely. Do you know if they are, is that a current practice? right now if they're still doing the phone calls or was that changed at all in
1: your you know i have not heard anything about that being changed i have done direct service work in the east bay for the past two years on and off so i'm not again as privy to information in san francisco which Mm, is kind of the problem which i can address later on but there are so many fantastic local advocates who again if you're not working for city government or in the sexual assault response team or somehow connected to these agencies you don't know what the issues are yes and it really blocks people from advocating for change that's part of what i want to see reformed as well yeah
0: In your experience, kind of going through that process step by step, have you seen that the police are kind of the gatekeepers to the, I guess, pursuit of justice or moving forward for justice for survivors?
1: Yeah, they absolutely are. And in my thesis, I included research around what you're speaking to and the decisions and the perceptions and judgments that the, the officers make when taking a report impacts the process down the line. Yes. And oftentimes, not oftentimes, most of the time, yeah. these folks do not have a deep understanding of sexual assault, trauma from sexual assault. They, they just simply don't know. and I will add one caveat, which is I made some recommendations in my thesis back in 2017 that I wouldn't recommend today. One of them was around more training for law enforcement, which, you know, initially sounds, yeah, people should be trained. But today, I think it's really important for advocates in the anti-rate movement. And this has always been important, but I think we're having this conversation more and more. We need to acknowledge the connection between the anti-violence movement and the anti-prison movement, you know, because gender and state violence are connected. So if we have anti rape and anti-violence advocates over here further legitimizing the state and asking for more investigators or more training, that negatively impacts the anti-prison and anti-police movements and creates more opportunities for violence against people of color. So yes. um, that's a recommendation I, I would definitely reconsider at this point. But I wanted to add that, that nuance to it.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that, but it, that's very true. Because if there's funding towards that, then that's going to affect the other side as well. So that's, that's a great point. What other policies did you recommend um, in your experience with your thesis or your experience um, as a anti-rape advocate?
1: Yeah, so first of all, every county should have a sexual assault response team. San Francisco does. It includes the local rape crisis center, the police, the DA's office, the forensic medical medical examiner, um, some other folks I can't think of right now. But as I said before, the information about their services is really hard to access. Yeah. They don't even have a website. So one of my first recommendations was provide this information to the public. You yes. know, you need a website maybe even open up these meetings, the monthly meetings with all the start members to the public, obviously including confidential information behind closed doors, then opening up the rest of the meeting, but give the community a chance to hear what's going on yes. and advocate for change.
0: Almost that like a town hard. hall. I would think almost like a town hall.
1: Sort of. I mean, you know, we have, police commission meetings that are open to the public we have other you know city meetings that people can listen in on and provide public comment and use that information from those meetings to advocate and yet the start stuff is all closed and again if you're not in that circle you don't know what's going on so you might be a survivor who wants to create change in your community but doesn't have the tools or information to do so so i kind of advocated to really open up that information to people and also have someone who coordinates these SART efforts. The organizations who are involved have to pull from their own resources, which for the local rape crisis center is limited. So having somebody to kind of coordinate all of that. One other thing I recommended, which is specific to San Francisco, because we have such a huge homelessness issue, is to appoint a homeless service provider to the sexual assault response team.
0: Oh, that's a good idea. We have that here too. We have a a huge homeless population in San Diego.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, so often the conversations around homelessness don't even touch upon sexual violence, which is just mind blowing to me because again, they're so interconnected. There are so many homeless people who experienced sexual violence in their past.
0: Which may even have
1: contributed to homelessness and then experienced it on the streets. Yes. And we're not considering how to coordinate and overlap the rape crisis services with shelter services. And the other piece of this is that in San Francisco, we do have beds allocated to shelter beds allocated to domestic violence survivors, but not sexual assault survivors as much. At least that was the case when I wrote this thesis back in 2017. So my my hope was that we could really better coordinate those services and get people the support that they need. Yeah, definitely. Those were just a couple of the recommendations that I had that stand out to me the most today is as really important still. Definitely.
0: That's a good point because I know for me when I went through the district attorney interview, one of the things I had said was, what are you doing to educate the public on sexual assault? Because if you have um, members come in to be a member of a jury and they are gonna be serving on a jury in a case, like they need to have some education on this. And they couldn't answer my question. They had nothing for me. And it, it was alarming to feel like are you educating the public? Like that's kind of part of the, the role that you should play in the community.
1: So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it speaks to the fact that we're all really complicit in violence that happens in our community. We all live in and participate in rape culture. And I go back to my experience at Piedmont, which is that, yeah, the varsity football players began the Fantasy Slut League, but it was also the teachers who kept quiet who I know for a fact heard about it, parents who said nothing, coaches, the football coaches especially, who absolutely knew what was going on and did nothing. They were all complicit. And that's why violence needs a community response.
0: It, it definitely does. It definitely needs a community response. What advice like do you have for how we can keep organizing survivors to create changes in their communities? Because I know you're discussing with different cities um, and advocates in different places. Do,
1: what advice would you have for that? That's a great question. I feel like... I'm in the very early stages of learning best practices, honestly. I can speak to what happened here in San Francisco. The survivor community here has been pretty well organized. I mentioned before that there were some folks who banded together to share their experience at a city hearing in April of 2018. And that led to the establishment of this new office the Office of Sexual Harassment and Assault Response and Prevention, like uh-huh. the name. And I thought that was a really fantastic example of advocates and survivors coming together. I know that some of those survivors had access to city leaders. And okay. that's kind of how the issue got on their radar. At the same time, though, I have used writing and op-eds and media relations to amplify the issues as well. And I know other advocates who I'm connected to have done something similar. So I do think that using the press is a good way to share these stories and really build public pressure and call local leaders to respond to these issues.
0: Yeah. I, I agree that the process is important. I know in my case, um, I mean, ultimately they dropped my case, but like a lot of survivors. Right. But um, along the way, I was being pretty mistreated by the district attorney office. So I had posted um, the business card of my district attorney to a pretty popular Facebook page, um, Brock Turner for Prison. And Then a lot of people saw it, so they started calling in and reporting, like, you need to treat this case better, like, she deserves justice, blah, blah, blah. Um, So I saw the power
1: of that firsthand, so I definitely agree that 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 has some power to it, yeah. really great that you did that. That brings up the other piece around digital organizing, which I've also relied on a lot. For my day job, I'm in communications, so I do social media marketing for clients, a number of different verticals, not related to advocacy at this point. But I do also use my Twitter and Instagram to reach new people. I think it was maybe two months ago, I tweeted, like, I'm looking for advocates who are at the intersection of gender and state violence. And I got in touch with some really amazing folks who are doing work in their city, Uh Um, And again, I'm I'm organizing this coalition. It's called Clara, the Coalition of Local Anti-Rape Advocates, and we're trying to organize our local communities and then also connect with other locally based survivor communities and not only connect the folks doing this work, but activate survivors who want to do this work and don't have the means of doing so at this point.
0: Yes. That's awesome. I know I, at one point was involved in an organization in DC. That sounds very similar. It was survivor justice movement, but it kind of like fizzled. So I imagine getting that set up across several communities would be so powerful. And I'm thinking too, like, I was talking to a survivor a few weeks ago and she wanted to, um, set certain things up and I had brought up to her like one thing that I feel like is so powerful with whether it's activism or nonprofits is almost like having ambassador programs. So like setting up an organization, but then having amb- ambassadors to do like similar
1: setup up in other cities. I totally agree. My, my vision has been that Clara will be kind of the parent organization, if you will, and then we'll have different chapters for different cities. So we all come together in this monthly meeting, let's say, touch base about what we're working on, what we need help with, but then we all go back to our specific city and organize together to really influence local policies and elections. And that's the other piece of this, which I have seen reflected in the Me Me Too movement's work with Me Too Voter. Mm-hmm. And that survivors are a political force to be reckoned with. Like, we are advocates and survivors. We're a great community and we're a voting block. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have local leaders vying for endorsements from political clubs. They should be vying for our endorsement. They should be answering oh. to us what are you going to do? And um, on that note, I'm working with some local advocates. To develop a sort of voter education guide where we send out a questionnaire to candidates you know inquiring about what are you going to do to address sexual violence in your district how are you going to increase access to resources how are you going to increase access to information about survivors rights and options in San Francisco. So I hope it happens Now that I told you it needs to happen.
0: No, oh, I love <laughs> but, that. I was like getting so excited inside hearing this. I was like, this is amazing. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: I hope that we are able to accomplish it because we're just a small team of, of people doing this out of our, you know, our outside of work, but hopefully we can get it done. It's, it's our goal right now.
0: That's amazing. That should happen in every city. Like seriously, in every I, city, I we need that.
1: Yeah, I think we do.
0: Because you're right, it is a political force. And if we had like a guide of what the candidates, what their initiatives are, or what their plans are to address it, I, I
1: feel like it does make a difference, especially with Post Me Too. Yeah, it sets the standard that local leaders need to address it. And again, it gives the community information to use and advocate with. You know, like, oh, this leader said X, Y, and Z, but what they're going to do, six months into their term, they haven't done that. What's going on? Yeah. You know, create them a means of accountability.
0: Yes. And if you get, like, a press involvement with that, too, then it gives even more of a spotlight on the issue and where each candidate stands. Right. Exactly. So then- and
1: we did some candidate research <laughs> And out of all of the people running for elected office, I think there were roughly like three to five that mentioned sexual violence on their website and or platform. That's a problem. That's a huge problem, especially because we're talking about, again, homelessness, crime, gentrification, all of which is connected to sexual violence.
0: Yes, yes, it, it is. You can't really tease them apart. It's interconnected. Exactly. So that's that's excellent. I was gonna ask you, and sorry, I feel like there's been noise in my background. There's construction next door. Oh, okay, so, okay. Okay. As we've been talking, I thought I heard like the dumpster and um, oh okay. you know. So I know since you worked. On a local crisis line, I was curious with that experience, what you would say to someone who's struggling? Because I always keep in mind when I record these episodes, kind of someone who's like first in their journey of like right after trauma surviving and might be having a really difficult time. And so I always wanna send out messages to support that.
1: So I know you, ha- you kind of have that experience working yeah. in that way. A lot of the time I would be asked like, how do I heal? What do I do? When am I gonna feel better? A lot of folks wanting a very clear cut manual to healing. And I would always tell people often to their dismay, I can't tell you that. Healing is not a linear process. It looks different for everybody. At the same time, healing is possible. And I think it's really important to communicate that message to folks because when you don't believe it's possible, it's really hard to get there. Everybody's path is going to look different. A lot of the times I would brainstorm with folks, what have been your coping mechanisms in the past? what works. And oftentimes people realize that they've developed these really fantastic tools for themselves that they need to tap into and are harder to tap into when they're in crisis.
0: Yes. You
1: reflect, you have a lot of the power and strength in you to, to heal. If you can take time to dig into that.
0: Yes, I, I completely agree. And I was on a podcast this morning and we were talking about healing and it, that's exactly what I was describing to her, that it's not linear. Like you can take five steps backwards and then three steps forward and maybe one day you take 10 steps forward and it isn't linear at all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's also really important to acknowledge how strong survivors are for simply existing in a world that doesn't support them or listen to them. A lot of times I would tell folks like you are clearly so strong. I can hear how powerful you are. And they will be like, how do you know that? Then, well, first of all, you called a crisis line to talk to a stranger that takes so much strength and so much willpower to advocate for yourself to get this resource. And at the same time, again, we live in a rape culture where survivors are, not only disbelieved, they're not trusted yes. often in public, in the public eye. So by just, you know, having that identity, being a survivor, you clearly have this resilience within you.
0: Yeah, that's great advice because it's so true. I mean, that when everything around you is like, well, what about his future instead of like focusing on, well, what about her future too? It's toxic culture.
1: Yeah, extremely toxic.
0: (laughs) Yeah, very toxic. So as you're connecting with these different communities and advocates in different places, are there any initiatives that you've seen in certain communities that you felt like we need to replicate
1: that across lots of our locations? That's a good question. I might need to think on that a bit. Ultimately, I'm just very impressed by the survivors I've connected with who have moved a lot of legislation forward on their own. Yeah. Even without a community. I would say that a lot of survivor spaces that are locally based do not yet have the clear structure and community piece. Like that's coming together I think and of course I have it connected to everybody in every city so I'm speaking more to the folks I've connected to Right. but again I'm just impressed by people who have on their own driven so much forward without the community or organizational support. That's another thing about being on the hotline is that it can also be very isolating. You at least for the organization I worked for, you take calls from home. And if you don't go to the advocate meetings or go to the office just to see folks, it's a difficult experience. And it can feel like it's just you out there. And I know that a lot of advocates who have turned their experience into policy change have really been doing a lot of it on their own which is impressive, and it shouldn't be that way, and I hope that in the future we can change that and we can really create this network of folks who are doing this, and we can amplify our political power.
0: Wow. Wow. I didn't even think about how you could take calls by yourself and how hard that must be to not be around anyone to, like, listen. Well, I know you can't, like, share specific details because of confidentiality, but, like, (laughs) just not being in a room of people that are there experiencing it too and to like bounce ideas off of or to just kind of vent to and doing that alone i could
1: see why there could be like a turnover rate or oh my you know god what I mean? yeah the burnout is is real and i have felt that the most in the past 6 months before that i was committing to doing like at least one hotline shift a month to stay grounded in the direct service work But the past six months, I just have not been able to do it. My anxiety has just been, like, off the charts. I'm already, like, buzzing with energy every day. And the anxiety from the hotline is real. It's hard. Yeah. Even when you're, like, an experienced counselor, you will just get a call where you feel like, I did nothing to help that person. I have no idea what I could have done. I mean, and counselors are not saviors. We're taught that. But at the same time, when you have a caller whose story and whose um, experience is just so, there's just, there's just nothing you can do on that 20 minute call. It it is hard. It is hard.
0: It reminds me of a story we hear in education about, there's a starfish story and it's about a man walking along the beach and he's picking up starfish to throw back in the ocean that are on the sand. And someone comes along and says like, how could you be? doing that like there's miles of beach and tons of starfish like are you can't save all of them and then he says well it made a difference for that one and I feel like that's that's gotta be similar to what yeah. you've experienced because it's like well you are there's someone that you are making a difference
1: for yeah I hope so that's a great story I love that
0: Yeah, it gives me comfort working in education because there's times in education, definitely not as intense as I can imagine answering a hotline, but we see some things that are not great, what trauma related to. And um, you you wonder who you're reaching sometimes.
1: Yeah, and I do want to shout out all the counselors out there. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just wish that people knew that there are so many just like, there are so many people across the country who volunteer their time just to be a counselor and answer answer the hotline like really the rape crisis centers are driven by volunteers yes they have typically they have a small staff and maybe ideally like 50 to 80 volunteers wow and that to me is just a perfect example of the community stepping up to be part of the solution yeah so shout out to counselors Shout out to those those who are continuing continuing during the pandemic when a lot of people are feeling a lot more trauma and isolation. And I just really respect people who are able to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, there's enough anxiety this year that I I couldn't imagine going through that, too. And if you it is like if you you have to be able to like take on the work emotionally, and you do have to take breaks because yeah. it's a lot. I mean, I've had before I started this podcast, I had months of time where I was I took breaks from volunteering in this world because it I, it was required if I was going to go long term. Yeah. So, totally. and watching. I do want to add also
1: that it's been very difficult for me to put myself out there. Like I continue to write stuff and advocate and build this specific coalition, but I feel like anxiety throughout this, you know? It's really hard to say that you know what the solutions are to a problem. Yes. And to put that out there into the world with authority. And I really struggle with that. I continue to do it, even though it gives me so much anxiety. But I want to just acknowledge that for folks who are like, I want to get involved. I want to do this. But like, for me, I have this phrase that's like, well, who am I to say this? Or who am I to be speaking on this? I have that thought a lot, which is fine just to ask myself because I am white identifying. So I do have privilege and I should check myself if I should be speaking or centering my voice at certain points. But I just want to acknowledge that can be really hard when you're stepping up into the advocacy space as just like an individual trying to make a change. Yeah, out there, it's it's hard.
0: I I know what you're saying because I when I got picked to speak at a conference on violence and trauma and abuse, I immediately went into like an imposter syndrome where I was like, oh my gosh, everybody else is a professor or in a nonprofit. Or a researcher or something and I was like well what, who am I like I'm just this little nobody who works with kids like what uh like what do I do and like do I deserve this so I feel like it's it, it can be scary but I knowing that we're working towards a common good and it's for the good of humanity I feel like we are deserving
1: so yeah but I but feel not like you're deserving
0: yeah the why yeah the purpose behind it um before we wrap up I wanted to step back a little bit and um ask you about when you were doing the opinion writing was there a certain writing piece that you wrote that kind of ignited the city leaders to start changing what they did or how did that how did it spark and change into different practices
1: yeah yeah I think that the first piece I wrote really sparked some change, but also because other advocates behind the scenes were doing work as well. Like, I I hate to be like, oh, my one piece (laughs) (laughs)
0: sparked
1: this change because I know that's just not true. (laughs) But I did write this piece, and it was part of building the momentum, so I will take that. But it was an adaptation of my graduate thesis into an article for a local publication Mm -hmm. that got in front of the local leader. And one part of this piece that I feel is important, I did not use survivors' experiences to create this kind of like trauma porn. You know what I mean? I really, really hate when people ask survivors details of their assault to get other people to care. Yeah, that's horrible and beside the point. Yes.
0: So what I did
1: in telling a story about these services is create this fake but based on real information and stories I've heard, this like fake persona of a survivor named Jamie. Mm. And I walked the reader through what happens to Jamie. I briefly mentioned Jamie was assaulted by her neighbor. She's now experiencing a lot of PTSD. She's scared to be in her home. She's losing work. She's losing money. And then going through the process to humanize it for people, to galvanize them, but to not use survivors in this icky way to again, make people give a shit, you know? And I I, I stand by that practice and I want to see that more because, again, I just think it's not productive to make folks relive the details of their assault to get other people to care.
0: I agree. I feel like it's like we're not going to make this, make someone's story into, like, this shock factor horror film so that you care. And yeah, when I have people come on this show, I always tell them like, I am not going to ask you questions about the incident. Like, I don't want to talk about that. If you want to share about it, you can share what you feel comfortable, but I don't like asking that because I don't like being asked that. I don't want to be asked about like, what I, you know, like what I was wearing or what I drank. Yeah. Like no one needs, it's not important. Right. Um, and it's it is totally triggering, and it's not necessary. So right. yeah, I I feel like it's the processes in itself speak for they speak yeah. for themselves on on how they affect um,
1: survivors. Absolutely, and some folks do want to share. Mm-hmm. I find that typically a lot of survivors don't, and this is horrible. But on the crisis line, we get prank calls. Oh wow! Oftentimes, there are people who do describe the incident in detail because they're using the line inappropriately. Not to say that survivors who want to describe the situation in detail are being inappropriate, but when you call the hotline and you're, you know, prank call, it's obviously inappropriate. But all of that is to say, typically, I have found that survivors would rather just kind of talk about their experience in the aftermath and healing and what trauma feels like in their body and how it impacts them but again for some it could be helpful but typically I feel like we should avoid asking people to relive details
0: yes definitely because a lot of the impact also comes with what happens after and you're trying to regain safety in your own body I mean because the crime happens in your body um, and you can't leave that crime scene so exactly
1: yeah yes. it's, Yeah, that's one thing I emphasized in my thesis as well, is that sexual violence lives beyond the actual incident of being raped or attacked. It impacts you throughout your life. For some people, that impact might be larger. It might be smaller. Again, I'm saying this while still acknowledging healing is possible, very possible, but this thread does continue throughout people's lives. So we need to acknowledge that piece of it too.
0: Definitely. I feel like it's always under the surface. And I think personally, I've made a lot of progress with healing, but it's still, there's days where something's going to come along and I didn't see it coming and it you can get back in that moment. And so it, it's a process for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I did want to ask... About to kind of end on a positive story that you can share from your experience working with survivors, whether it's through the advocacy or the crisis line, um, any positive story that shared stands out to you? Yeah,
1: a couple things come to mind. The first being, again, the advocates that I'm connected to who I'm so inspired by, who really have taken this horrible trauma and transformed it into this radical change that really moves me and inspires me. Most recently, there was an account started by students at my old high school called Piedmont Protectors. And they were creating a space to share stories from students about sexual assault and harassment and this culture, this rape culture at the school that has persisted for decades clearly. And it's amazing to see almost 10 years later that there are students doing more than we could at the time. When I was in high school, I did not know anything about feminism sexual assault. I didn't know anything. And 10 years later, not only do these students know what that is, but they're actively advocating for change on campus and calling out the administration. And that really makes me hopeful for the future. I mean, there's so many young people doing really great work. So that's really what excites me.
0: That is exciting. That's a wonderful cultural shift to, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that gives me hope too, to hear that. that that, That's happening. And so where can people find you on social media?
1: Yeah. So I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mm -hmm. underscore Bianca Rosen underscore. And if there are any survivors and or advocates listening who are doing work locally, I'd love to connect with them. They can email me. Um, I'm not sure if we can put like the email in the show notes or whatever, but it's just yeah. biancarosen rosen 444 at gmail.com. I'd love to connect with people and really build this locally based movement of advocates doing amazing stuff in their city or town.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think there's, I can think of a few advocates um, who I feel like would be good connections. So I'm definitely gonna start some some, some news on this. So that's Great. great. Well, thank you again for coming on the show today. This was a really insightful conversation. I know my mind is like turning on ideas and what we can keep doing in this community to push advocacy forward.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. This was really fun. I hope that we can stay in touch also and support each other. Yes, definitely.
0: So, if you like the content in today's episode, please rate and review this episode, share it with a friend, and check us out on Instagram at Voices Not Victims, Twitter at Voices Not Victim, and Consider joining the Facebook group at Voices Not Victims. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Stay tuned because we've got some really awesome people coming on in the upcoming months, including nonprofits, survivors, and social justice groups. So please hit subscribe so you can get the latest information on all of that, and we will see you next time.